The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 75 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, and I'm sitting here along with my co-host, former Secret Service agent Andy Bonello, and the chief security officer of BitGo, Tom Pageler. We've got a great show for you tonight, folks. Gentlemen, how goes it this evening? Fantastic, fantastic, brother. Thanks. Yeah, great, great, man. Hey, good to have you guys on. Let's move right to the exciting disclaimer. I want to emphasize that all experiences expressed in this show are my own. I'm not the right president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or had have in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So from all accounts, the RSA conference last week was enormous. It's a total blowout out there. I mean, I think people were saying it was like 30% bigger than previous years, which is really just colossal. And it seems like everyone had a great time out there. Lots going on. There was a lot of deals going down, lots of money being exchanged. Uh, and I think, Tom, I think you went. Did you get your uh, Huawei USB drive? <laughs> you no, know, I did not. Uh, this time I decided to skip all the USB drives or <laughs> hand it out and uh, any of the free stuff. Now, uh, to your no point, go, it's a no-go this year? <laughs> no-go this year. But no, to your point, I was there. Uh, I, I didn't walk the floor this year. Uh, I, I attended the events around there. It was much crazier. I obviously live in the area. I haven't seen traffic that bad. The amount of people, the amount of restaurants packed. Uh, I didn't. I kind of stayed away from Moscone Center where it's at because it was just absolutely flooded. Just so many people. So very crazy year this year. Is it is it Moscone or Moscone? Moscone sounds Moscone. It's Moscone. It's the Moscone. Moscone. Yeah. Well, you know. So look, I think the rumors about the RSA conference going away anytime soon have been dispelled, right? Because there are just tens of thousands of people out there, and I was kind of feeling left out out here on the, on the East Coast, uh, all by my lonesome, and, and getting all these texts to meet people at certain places and times, and meet me here, and meet you there, and, and you know, people just assume that I was there, just like I guess we discussed last week, people just assume you're there, right? And that's probably just the way RSA wants people to feel if they didn't go, right? And Andrew, I think you mentioned that during our last episode last week. Yeah, right. It's, uh, it's you know, the cost-benefit analysis are going out there, right? It's interesting. I had the same feeling, George, right? It's like, man, it would be great to be out there, see everybody, but you know, man, I wouldn't know how to plan that thing or plan my schedule around that thing, all the texts I got and invites I got. So um, it was, it was, uh, it'll be interesting to see how people recover this week. Yeah, no doubt. My phone was blowing up. And, and this week, I think, is, I think it's traditionally RSA recovery week. I have always found this week to be extremely slow. 
because everyone is just doing follow-ups to their RSA trip. They have to make sure that that $150,000 they spend on those three dinners that they got is worth it, right? And if they don't follow up right away, then, you know, it's not, it's not a really good deal. So we had a great show last week. You know, we broke down some of the main themes of the RSA conference for everyone. Uh, we included some analysis, analysis on some of the cost of the conference, uh, which was interesting. Also, the need for consolidation of the solution sets across the industry, which most CISOs are clamoring for. And we also spoke about artificial intelligence being utilized to fill the skills gap that really got the juices flowing here on the show. And I think it's a, it's a very interesting idea. Um, there's some pretty strong opinions about it. And then we provided some analysis on, on the radical trend of companies choosing to sue their employees who fall for phishing attacks. And so there's a few different articles out there about that. You know, we covered that kind of crazy stuff. And finally, in the last segment, we reviewed a new cybersecurity law in Thailand that gives the government total control over the internet. And that has privacy rights activists around the globe up in arms. So all that and more on last week's episode. That's episode number 74 of Task Force 7 Radio. I want to give one more shout out to the, the February 2019 Encore episode of TF7 Radio. What is the future of bug bounties? And this is one of Tom's favorite topics. And he was on the show and we had uh, a really robust discussion. We had one of the most listened to episodes uh, that we've ever had uh, was this episode. And if you haven't heard it yet, it was uh, really bumped up among the, the February episodes in your TF7 library. So if you just go to your library, look at the February episodes, it's right there. If you haven't heard it already, give it a listen. It's really a good conversation about some out-of-the-box stuff in the bug bounty world. That's February 2019 Encore episode. What is the future of bug bounties on TF7 Radio? Well, if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America, or maybe just someone sent you a link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on Playback. We've got a new website, tf7radio.com, so check it out. I know I've been promising that I'm going to up update this episode library, and I swear I, I'm going to do that really soon, I promise. I'm getting around to it. I'm just about there. But we have almost 70 episodes on there right now. And if you go to our website and you go to the top right-hand corner, you hit the subscribe tab, and it takes you to a page with all your playback mediums. So it's very convenient. Um, we got about nine out there. We got 11 now, so we got to update that, put the two latest ones on there. And it gives you an option to subscribe to the show right from the TF7 website, which is what we really prefer you to do, because this way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. And as the site gets more robust and we start using it uh, more and more to uh, interact with our audience, we're going to have a lot of great stuff for you. So we're on 11 different playback mediums now. It's almost like I'm losing count. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We're literally everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. The easiest way to find us is just Google Task Force 7 Radio and you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. Love it. We love when you subscribe. So we've got another great show for you this week. We're going to have a special guest for you. Mr. Ben Brooks is going to be on the show with us this evening. Ben is a 20-year cybersecurity veteran and an 18-year chief cryptologic technician veteran of the Naval Special Warfare, Special Intelligence, and Electronic Warfare teams. I'm not sure I got that right. Uh, obviously a veteran of the United States military, and he's also a Navy reservist as well. So Ben came, uh, became an expert in electronic signals exploitation and was assigned to the special units for duty with the Navy SEALs, as well as some other three-letter government organizations during his time with the military. So Brooks currently serves as the CEO of Beryllium, 
and as the Navy Information Operations Command Officer of Minneapolis Branch Training Division, where he also provides subject matter and exam writing expertise for ISC Squared. So he kind of does it all. It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Ben Books to the show. Ben, welcome to TF7 Radio. Hey, thank you very much, George. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. So, Ben, first, I want to thank you for your service to our country and the sacrifices that you and your family have made to protect all of our freedoms and preserve our way of life here. Thank you for everything you've done for all of us. I appreciate it. Uh, It's been an honor and a pleasure. So, look, tell us a little bit about your military background and how you got into cybersecurity. I know it's, it's got to be a, a cool story. Everybody likes to hear these kind of stories, especially from military guys, because you have the most coolest things to talk about. Oh, man, it's, uh, it feels like three lifetimes ago. So I started with the Navy, and uh, they wanted me to be a, a nuclear power technician, and I didn't feel like that was really the, uh, the right path for me. And the Navy agreed, so they let me choose a, uh, another specialty, another job there in the enlisted forces. And uh, I looked in the big book of jobs, and they had electronic warfare technician and guns and missiles and radars and computers. I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. Let me do that. Fast forward uh, about five years later, and I'm sitting there in my third pump to the Gulf delivering Marines. And don't get me wrong, we did some cool stuff. But I said, man, I, I don't know. Looking at this green screen for the next 15 years doesn't seem like the right thing either. <laughs> I had originally joined because I wanted to join the, the teams, but, uh, you know, those recruiters are very persuasive saying, uh, saying that, uh, you know, you get $40,000 if you become a nuclear power technician as a bonus, right? I'm like, hmm, well, okay. <laughs> but uh, long story short, I saw a advertisement for a job inside, you know, in, inside the military, we have job advertisements just like everybody else. And uh, it says we need a, SIGINT kind of guy for work with the SEAL teams. So I applied, I got it, and I, I, I learned so much so fast. It was an incredible time. Definitely, uh, definitely the glory days, but don't get me wrong, there's, there's more but different things to come. Well, you make it just sound easy good. like you just applied and got the job, and I'm sure a lot of people applied for that job and didn't get it, right? So, but I mean, I mean, it sounds like it was, you know, full of life-changing experiences for you. Yeah, I definitely had to uh, uh, get myself in even better shape. I was in pretty good shape, Um, but I also had to uh, brush up on my study skills so I could become a fast study. And so ultimately, they had me learn about uh, a lot of different technologies to the point where I was actually doing technology validations for um, all special forces, really. Um, So people would just kind of ask me, hey, what do you think about this? I'm like, I don't know. I haven't had any experience with it. Well, we'll send you out there to the manufacturer and you can hang out for days on end and tell us what you think when you get back. Yeah, figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so so I did. And it was it was great. And so uh, when I got out, I had no idea what kind of skill set I had. And I'd just done so much. I couldn't figure out what the heck I was going to do. What I did know is that I couldn't maintain that, that pace, that lifestyle, and have a family. Uh, so the family is, of course, everything, right? right. So I, uh, I said, what am I going to do? And a guy said, well, you know a lot about computers. Have you ever thought about cybersecurity? I'm like, cybersecurity? Huh. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, let me take a look. What's the best thing that you can, uh, you know, what's the best thing that you do? Well, you go through the certification process. He told me like, okay, what's the highest one? CISSP, but that takes years. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and I did it in 30 days. So, um, you know, obviously I had the experience and that's really the key. I'm not sitting here trying to be a braggart or anything. It's just, that's how it kicked off. I got my CISSP in 30 days and this company said, well, come on in. And that's how, uh, that's how we got started. So how'd you end up in landlocked Minnesota after being a career Navy guy? Well, I think as you guys know, there are a lot of good solutions out there for cybersecurity, information security, and there are a lot of bad solutions out there. And uh, I ended up with some folks who wanted me to do some things that I was not comfortable with. Uh, and, you know, to the, uh, uh, to toot the horn of the Navy, we're, we're very high, and all the forces really, we're very high on ethics, right? And so uh, when somebody asked me to do something that I was not comfortable with, I said, no, this is not okay, and I will not be part of this. So I left, and I applied for a job with United Health Group in, uh, in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, and off I went, taking the family with me. <laughs> so, so right now you're the CEO of Beryllium. And that's, by the way, is a really cool name. So you can tell us a little bit about that. But what do you do there every day? What's Beryllium about? What's your mission? What's going on with that? Well, uh, I'm vice president of Beryllium, right? Uh, so I actually, in my role, I'm more the chief operating officer. I don't have enough gray hair yet to be a, a CEO, I feel. Uh, too much time in the military, not enough time in the business world yet. But uh, Beryllium's name is it's from the periodic table of elements. So uh, number four on the list periodic table of elements, but we chose beryllium uh, because it does sound cool. <laughs> uh, but because beryllium by itself really doesn't do anything that great. In fact, it's, it's a carcinogen. But when you add it to other materials, it makes some of the strongest alloys on the face of the planet. So it's very much like information security. If we do information security just for its own sake, it's no good. It really impedes operations. It makes people's lives miserable. But when we add it to an operation, when we add it to a business, it makes that business stronger. And it can even enable best practice operations. So how do you think this, this model that you're using helps you to differentiate yourself from some of these competitors that have more traditional models out there with these solution sets? Well, uh, again, we don't do information security for information security's sake. Uh, if there's something that's going to stop someone, the business, from doing their job well, uh, we're not going to do it. We're going to find another way to get around it. So uh, basically, we focus on the operations piece because if the business can't operate effectively and efficiently, it's not going to make money and all this security stuff is for naught anyway. So that's one of our biggest differentiators. The other one is that we are, uh, we're a collaboration. You know, we're not trying to do it all ourselves. Yeah, we could hire a whole stable of people in there to, to sit there and wait for the jobs to come up, but that just raises the cost for our existing clients, and that's not fair. So what we do is we bring in the people who are specialists. We have uh, trusted, vetted companies that we partner with to bring in those specialties like penetration testing, uh, forensic investigation, and that's how we keep costs down. We only get it when people need it. So 
You know, I got to ask you this question because I, I know a lot of people, we talk about it on the show in a lot of previous episodes. We have a very high opinion of our, our military, and we think our military is very elite in many different areas, uh, and including offensive, you know, cybersecurity uh, operations. We know that sort of in the defensive world, they're, they're not as good, and that's been widely reported and reviewed articles in the, in the Washington Post and the New York Times about some of the issues that we have from a defensive posture standpoint. What's your opinion, and you know, how do we rank in cybersecurity, both on the offense and defense, if you can talk about whatever you can talk about? That's, uh, that's a pretty loaded question. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of aspects to this, of course. Um, do we have elite cybersecurity folks working in the DOD and in the government? You bet we do. Are all of our areas in the, in the government, in the DOD, elite at cybersecurity? No. It's just like everything else, right? There are some folks who, who just want to walk in and punch the ticket, and there are those folks who are really passionate about the job and really are, are experts in the field above and beyond some others. And again, it's just like any other aspect of, of any organization. Uh, so are we uh, above and beyond? In some ways, we are. Uh, but there's always going to be work to do. As any good information and cybersecurity professional would tell you, it never ends. All right. Right. So the bottom line is, can we turn the lights off over there? I mean, when it, when it, when it breaks really bad, can we just unload and just you know, shut a whole country down? Well, I don't think I could talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see whatever you can say. But, all right, look, we're going to transition to commercial break right here. But, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow us on TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications. Please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to take a pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back with Special Intelligence and Electronic Warfare veteran, Mr. Ben Brooks. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. 
Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skill shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely. Their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post-perimeter world. Visit lookout.com forward slash task force seven to learn more today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with my guest host of TF7 Radio, former Electronic Crimes Task Force agents with the United States Secret Service, Tom Pagler and Andy Benillo. And we have our special guest with us here this evening, electronic warfare veteran and vice president of Beryllium, Mr. Ben Brooks. So, Ben, you know, you're not the only vet working over there at Beryllium. So is that by design and how does that work? It is by design. We are a service-disabled veteran-owned small business and uh, one of the things that I find is that veterans really get the warfare aspect of this whole information slash cybersecurity uh, gig, right? So it's uh, it's it, it, they understand why why we do this, why we defend, even though we can't see the threat imminent right in front of us. They get it. We have to be ready and prepared at all times. So that is by design for sure. So you have uh, your work with Beryllium, but yet you're, you're still a Navy reservist. And you know, how does that take up your time and what's that, what's that entail? It's the standard reserve slash National Guard 
aspect, you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Um, but it's, it's really good because it helps me stay focused on uh, the national defense play and gives me, uh, keeps, me, keeps me on the pulse of what's going on without any biases from, uh, from any media source or any, uh, any major rumors or anything like that. It's actually very helpful in that regard. Plus I get to, uh, I get to maintain that camaraderie that we have in the, uh, in the DOD and in the military. And that's really something special. Do you find that, uh, Oh, sorry, go to Andy. Oh yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, that's the key, right? You get to, you get to, don't worry about bonuses or promotions or the sales funnel, right? Get out there with the teams, have a good time, you know, and hope you, and it also helps, I think, you know, take care of that transition as you're progressing through business. Right. So how is that working out for you? You know, is the, is the you know, working with like-minded people that understand where you came from, how is that helping you make the transition from uh, the government into the private sector? Honestly, I, I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't have done the transition without it, really. Uh, to say it's a crutch is fine by me. I don't care. Uh, I think it's a great aid to anybody getting out of active duty if they don't have a full 20 in to explore going into the reserves because it does give you that, that foothold of familiarity and then you can straddle the fence being in the DOD and in the civilian sector and the two do complement each other. You learn so much more from a different perspective in the reserves than just having to jump straight into civilian life where it's just a completely different world. Do you get to do cybersecurity related stuff in the reserves? And is that like, that's gotta be pretty awesome because you get to see your government complimenting your private and your private complimenting your government or are you, um, are you in that kind of area? Yeah, I'm the training officer at Navy Information Operations Command, Texas, Minneapolis branch. And wow. so I, I do get to see uh, a lot of the the goings-on, if you will. But, of course, we have to keep all of those separate. Uh, anything that's open source, fair game. So if we get to see techniques that, and as you might, you guys know, you guys understand, yeah, yeah. there's all the classifications and such. So we just, we, we make sure that we're very careful about that specifically so that we don't, uh, so that we don't do anything, even if it is with an open source tool uh, that might not be kosher. But, yeah, you absolutely say, yeah. get to see it. Yeah, say, but still, I mean, that's one of the hardest things we have here is getting those, you know, private and public partnerships, right? And you, you get to straddle both, which is great. And like you said, even if you're not, I get it, you, you've got your lines, you can't do this, you can't do that. But no matter what, your talents go into both sides. And, and that experience, no matter what, it is awesome and what we need. So, you know, really thank you for your service. Like I said, it's a pleasure. So thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, after every weekend, the boys are coming to you saying, hey, you got any, got any spots open for me? <laughs> Sometimes they say that, but uh, most of the time it's like, hey, Chief, I need you to figure out this uh, paperwork for me. <laughs> so you made a note of the fact that some of these um, people that are coming out of the military really fit in well in the cybersecurity world because they have a certain mindset, right? And I think that mindset is very conducive to the, the cybersecurity industry. And I found the same thing. I mean, how has your military career influenced your work as a civilian in information security now? 
That's a great question. And it's really been a, a massive influence. You know, if, if I had started out as an IT guy, uh, I, I don't know if I would have the same mindset that I have now. And we pinged on it a little bit already. Uh, it's, it's about understanding the need to defend, understanding that you could be a target at any time. I mean, if you really think about it, the bad guys, the attackers, are basically cyber terrorists. They come out of the blue, they attack for whatever reason, whether it's monetary gain, just for, for shits and grins, excuse me, um, or, or for a, whatever other reason. And it doesn't really matter who you are and where you are, you could be a victim. And so the military has really put me in that mindset, especially the special forces. We're always looking to hone our craft, always looking to be better. And if we're not, we're falling behind. So that's a huge aspect of it. So, you know, speaking of falling behind, you know, the cybersecurity attacks that we're seeing these days just keep getting more prolific and more complex. Um, there's more collaboration of the bad guys and the attacks. In your mind, in your opinion, where where do you see the major gaps in our defenses, both from a government and a, and a private sector industry standpoint, because you've done both? Well, to be honest, it's not really the cyber aspect of it. It's the information security aspect of it, which includes the entire program. So the first I would say would be the lack of interest from the general everyday user in information and cybersecurity. Uh, oftentimes, the organization can't put the correct emphasis on how important this is to protect our information. And we end up with weariness, training weariness, right? Nobody wants to come to work and see, well, got another training session we got to do. Oh, good. It's computer based. I can just click through it, right? We all, we all have, have heard of that or seen that happen. Uh, and so without the correct emphasis, without the correct buy-in from everybody within the organization, you really open yourself or themselves up to uh, the worst of the attacks, social engineering, um, phishing attempts. And as we all know, a phishing attempt, oh, I got, a, I got an email with the malicious link. Well, it's not the email with the malicious link. It's did you click the link? What is at the other end of that link? What did you do once you got to the other end of that link? And it's just the, it's the wedge that gets the attackers started in the exploitation cycle of, that, uh, of the, whatever attack they might have in mind, right? And so on a, oh yeah, go for it. You, 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 had a, you mentioned the difference between cybersecurity and information security, or you at least noted that there is a difference between the two, and maybe that information security had a more broader term and scope and scale than cybersecurity. What is the differentiation between the two? Well, InfoSec traditionally on the DOD side was talking about basic classifications of information. But on the civilian side, and even more so these days, we're talking about controlling information properly. And, and it's not some Illuminati style must control what the, the populace knows kind of thing. It's all about making sure that the right people have the right access to the right information, but not others, so that we can make sure that we are protecting that information that could end up being exploited and, and cause havoc to an organization, our families, the government, anything. And information security now 
takes on that aspect of every medium in every way that you could share. So how do you take a phone call? How do you, how do you check your email? What do you do with that paper that has PHI on it? Do you just leave it out on the desk overnight or do you put it in a locked filing cabinet? That's the biggest difference. So let me shift gears here for a second and, and talk about some of the standards that are out there. There are so many standards in the industry right now, separate standards for each vertical or each sector that you're in, and they provide different frameworks for information security professionals in, in different industries and sometimes in the same industry. Would you recommend any one particular standard over another? Well, and some people are going to be, uh, some people are going to cringe when they hear me say this, but honest to God, the National Institute of Standards and Technology Information and Cybersecurity Standards are really where it's at. Uh, and the reason for that is because they have an entire team dedicated to compiling the best uh, best practices and most recent and up-to-date information on information security attacks. I mean, they're the ones who maintain that common vulnerability enumeration, right? So that national vulnerability database, they maintain all of that. And so they're always looking at it, and putting it together, inviting experts from outside to help build this open source framework and recommendations so that people can do security wherever they are, whatever size organization they are. Now, the only problem with that, of course, is that it can be very difficult to comprehend because it's written by information security professionals for information security professionals. And in that regard, uh, honestly, the other frameworks are built off of that anyway. So why would you go anywhere else? Just go right to the source. You think there's a struggle between some of these frameworks? Because I know that even with the NIST, they have this financial profile now um, for financial institutions, and it's a, a framework for them to use. And it's definitely taking into consideration some of these other frameworks that are out there, like you noted, and I kind of think that at some point, to your, you know, to your, to your suggestion, what, why do we need to even look at some of these other frameworks in certain cases? That's not, of course, in every instance, but if we're having one centralized framework where everybody can look to and work off of and sort of get some regulatory harmony here, right, off of all of the other frameworks, why go anywhere else? I agree. I mean, that's Xanadu, right? Everybody has one common framework that they work off of, and everybody understands it. Uh, unfortunately, we're really far away from that. Again, it, it comes to that organization not understanding why they're doing this, how important it is to their organization, so they're reluctant to do anything. Well, that's why the cybersecurity framework uh, that NIST puts out is really great, because it lets people kind of consume it uh, in, in individual spoonfuls, if you will, right? So instead of trying to eat the entire bucket of ice cream, they're, they're using it a spoonful at a time. Whereas if you just grab the NIST 853, the giant Bible of, of cybersecurity controls, it, you wouldn't even know where to start for most people, right? So um, should you even look at the other frameworks? Well, of course, because it depends on what kind of information that you right. have. Right. If you've got credit card information, you got to go with the PCI DSS. You don't have a choice. If you have HIPAA information, uh, you're going to have to implement those privacy and PHI uh, protections as required. And 
by the way, NIST does have those, uh, but <laughs> uh, it's easier for people to consume them in other packages generally than just looking at the giant catalog that NIST puts out. I agree. I agree with you on that. I mean, I think having a standard, uh, you know, I think NIST is good. If you're a global uh, company, I think ISO's got some good ones, 27001. But uh, either way, you can map NIST to ISO, ISO to NIST. I totally agree with you. Credit cards, PCI, you know, getting into HIPAA, look at the NIST and yep. ISO standards recommendations around that. Taking a risk-based approach, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you. We're ways off, but, you know, thankfully, more and more of us are, are seeing the advantages of that. And I think more and more um, companies are asking in their third-party reviews, you know, of their vendors that they have some kind of framework. So I think, you know, exactly what you're saying is uh, starting to take off and is much better. And thank goodness for that. Yeah. So Ben, do you, you foresee that there's going to be, you know, if we ever get to a place where we consolidate on a framework that there, there'll be a regulatory body that sits over all of that? Well, somebody's going to try and do that. And in fact, there are regulatory bodies that are trying to do that right now in certain industries. And really what that's going to come down to, uh, I'm not a cynic, I'm just realist. It's going to be a money play unless the United States government says, this is what it's going to be, period. And we're going to be the ones who dictate that. But of course, that comes with its own challenges. Um, so I, I think that somebody is going to try and grab for that. But uh, uh, we should resist that. We should make sure that at least that whatever that regulatory body is, that it's done for the right reasons, altruistic reasons, honestly. You know, and I work, work for big companies you kind of maybe lose sight of the fact that some of these smaller, even mid-sized companies don't have the resources to put together these, these heat maps and organize their, their regulatory answers in a way that some of the larger companies do because they have the resources to, and they can get that, you know, to that regulatory harmonization state that they want to be in easier in some respects, in some respects, right, than some of these smaller companies. I mean, if you're a small business owner, right? I mean, how do you tackle cybersecurity compliance? Uh, it, it, according to all these, right, you know, COVID, 27,001, this. What do you do? Where do you start? That's a great question. Uh, it's the elephant, right? One bite at a time. Well, that doesn't help a lot of people. Uh, but in reality, what you need to do is you need to look at what kind of information that your small, medium-sized business needs to protect. So uh, look at it from, do I have regulatory requirements? All right, so we'll just say the small business is just a, a, a grocery chain or something like that. So what kind of information do they need to protect? They need to protect that credit card information, so they have to adopt PCI. But do they want to do anything more? Do they have like a flyer that they send out to their patrons? Well, they need to protect their privacy information too. So how are we gonna do that? Oh, well, NIST has CSF, or we could do uh, an ISO framework from uh, a chunk from the 27,000 series. Um, but really what it comes down to is if they're going to try and do it themselves, always start with what is the information, what do I already have in place, and how can I improve what I already have in place in accordance to the best practices that are listed in these free for the for the referencing frameworks out there and then I need to start implementing those the other thing that they got to remember is anything like this is going to cost a little money 
whether it's in actual buying the, the boxes or the software, or whether it's open source stuff that's going to cost a lot of person hours and elbow grease. It's going to cost money to implement this stuff. But in the end, it's always cheaper than taking that hit, losing reputation, losing operational functionality, having to reboot or rebuy infrastructure. It's always going to be cheaper than that. So let's say that I'm this small business owner and I need uh, a contractor or a consultant to come in uh, because I can't do this in-house and I can't address these regulatory requirements that I have uh, in-house. And you over at Beryllium have this consortium of resources that you use all the time and that you've obviously vetted. What, what, what should the small business owner do? What do they look for in a contractor or a consultant in this situation? That's a great question. Um, one of the biggest things that a small business owner can do is download either, you know, say for instance, the, uh, uh, the SANS, the SANS 20 or a CIS, right. And, and say to that contractor, uh, how are you going to fulfill these requirements for me? Pull out the check sheet and just ask them, great, you guys want to work with us. We, you seem like nice guys, gals. Uh, why don't you just uh, go through me with me here and say, how are you going to fulfill each one of these? Just a broad brush stroke overview. And if they hesitate, then it, chances are they didn't have the plan in place for that. And they're going to need to broaden the scope of, the, uh, of whatever that contract is to help you with it. Uh, the worst thing that people can do is, is address one aspect and not be prepared to take on the entire ball of wax because all you're doing is leaving yourself still weak and giving yourself a, uh, a false sense of security. Okay, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with electronic warfare veteran and vice president of Beryllium, Mr. Ben Brooks, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. 
Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with my guest hosts of TS7 Radio, Tom Paisler and Andy Vanillo, and our special guest this evening, electronic warfare veteran and vice president of Beryllium, Mr. Ben Brooks. So, Ben, you know, during our discussions, I've heard you say a lot that IT is not security. What do you mean by that? That's a, a phrase that I picked up along the way because uh, uh, it's not. IT is not security. And security is not IT. And what I mean by that is um, information security is all about securing information, right? But information technology is all about sharing information. And so uh, it's more about having that yin and that yang, finding the balance between the two. The IT pro, yeah, they, they think about security every now and again. The best ones do quite a lot. Um, but an information security professional thinks about it all the time. On the other side, the information security professional, do they think about connectivity? Yeah, they think about it a little bit, but uh, that's not their goal in their job is to make sure that everything is connected. That's not their biggest concern or their biggest consideration. So you have to have both. You have to have the IT folks and you have to have the security folks. Otherwise, you're only doing half the job. Hey, Ben, with, uh, with the, in your company, does IT report into more of an ops person or a security person? Because at BitGo, I own IT, I own infrastructure by choice because we're trying to put security first. So we actually purposely are putting IT, infrastructure, all that under security. And I think it's a big change from what it used to be with the CISO reporting into like a CIO, a technology type person or information officer. How, how do you view that? Do you think it's a change you're seeing more and more? And do you do that yourself? Yeah, we actually have a uh, we actually have a rep in the C-suite for IT and one for security as well, uh, because it is that important. I mean, we're not doing our business without functioning IT, and we're not going to stay in business very long without functioning security. It just is kind of a an artifact of who we are, right? <laughs> but it should it should be. They should not report to the same people, uh, and they shouldn't be the same people. So there's a lot of emerging technologies out there, and we have, you know IoT, mobile cloud. Are, are cloud technologies safer 
than regular on-prem infrastructures. I mean, everyone's trying to make that migration. I don't know if people are interested in your opinion. Man, that is, uh, that is something huge. I hear people say, oh, we're in the cloud, so we're secure. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous, honestly. Um, the cloud is just an organization of other computers. And some people use it just to mean that they don't have their compute, basically their infrastructure, on site anymore. And so people really have to be careful when they think that, that uh, cloud technologies are any safer than uh, the traditional on-premises technologies. The fact of the matter is that a lot of them are actually less safe. And it's dependent, very highly dependent, on who is setting up their infrastructure, who is programming those uh, specific instances of cloud servers or serverless, whatever you want to call it. It's still computed somewhere. It still has to be set up with security in mind. And if it's not, it's no more secure than just pulling it out of the box. Hey, Ben, so how, how are you advising folks who are making that transition or looking to make the transition from on-prem to the cloud? Well, I say it's, it's really a business decision. And as with any business decision, we have to look at it from, uh, you know, a cost-benefit analysis. And if people aren't adding security to that equation, they're only seeing three-quarters of the, of the actual cost-benefit, right? So if you could uh, – basically what we do is we talk about if you could do this for cheaper, great. Now, did you think about security? No? All right. Now, how much does it cost to implement the security in this cloud space? Is it still cheaper? Is it still more efficient? Yes? Awesome. Let's do it. If it's not, if it's not as secure or it presents a massive security vulnerability or it's not cheaper just because you have to add security now, don't do it. Don't bother. You still get the same you should still get the same performance. Let's put it that way. So one of the main themes out in RSA was artificial intelligence and how it's going to affect the cybersecurity industry. How do you think AI is going to impact the cybersecurity professionals? And, and also considering the talent crisis that we have, that was a lot of the ways that it was introduced out in RSA this week. Do you think it's going to have any uh, uh, impact on filling these talent uh, holes that we have? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, we have to be very careful when we use the term artificial intelligence because a lot of people get confused with machine learning and machine intelligence uh, with artificial intelligence, and they're three completely different things. So artificial intelligence, something that's going to learn on its own, something that is uh, able to think outside of its own uh, originally defined parameters, really, uh, we're not there yet. Is the possibility that it's going to help with cybersecurity tremendous? You better believe it, man. Um, even now, machine learning is, is making a very significant impact, looking for, looking for anomalies in systems, uh, anomalous activity, not just, hey, this is set up wrong, but this thing is acting in a way that we weren't expecting, so let's investigate it more. That is great stuff. I mean, it's basic automation, right? And, and if you can take somebody who's already weary of looking at this stuff all day long and cut their churn in half, cut their effort in half by using a, a machine learning tool, awesome. I love, incredible. by the way, I love that you just you know, define machine learning versus AI. I'm sure you've heard the show before. 
That is something I keep saying is, you know, people think of AI. It's not AI. Artificial intelligence is way out in the future. It's when the machines are actually, you know, absolutely learning themselves and doing it. But, you know, I do agree with the machine learning is where it's at. And that's what's going to, you know, cut down some of the, the white noise that we're hearing and, and some of that. Great definition. Thank you. Tom, Tom, Ben, real quick. Do, do you guys think that that's the next, like the development of AI or, or the furtherance of ML is like the next arms race? Right? I, mean, I mean, think about countries fighting countries, countries' machines fighting other countries' machines. Ooh, that's a good question. What's your take there? Uh, I, I think it's going to happen regardless of whether it's the next one or not. Uh, I think quantum computing is, is right up there with it. And we don't want to get that one pushed to the wayside because if we get quantum computing going, it may lead to better machine learning. It may lead to um, technologies that we haven't even conceived of yet. So I, I, wouldn't, I would put both of those at the top of the list for sure. Yeah, and I think that uh, your point, Andy, like and, and mentioning quantum computers and mentioning um, AI, I actually don't know if it's necessarily going to be a country that hits it first. It might be private industry. We see a lot of uh, big companies um, playing around with quantum computers, and we also see uh, AI coming. I keep predicting it's going to come from more of a like autonomous driving or autonomous flying, something like that, because there are the ones actually making decisioning that's becoming more and more smart. So it's going to be that whole life and death thing. And I, I actually think it might hit in a private sector in just a matter of where is that, you know, how secure is that, who grabs that technology. Because quantum, quantum computers is pretty, that's pretty scary. Anybody who gets that, basically everyone's password is just, you know, forget about it. You're, you're pretty much open. If, it, if someone has quantum computers, they own the world at that point. Yeah, I think, I think that's going to be a problem. And I think when people look at some of their future material risk, that, that is definitely something that's got to, you know, be at the top of the, uh, top of the list because I, I think you know, major institutions are going to panic. I mean, all this, all this encryption that we have today uh, is going to be jeopardized and it's going to change the way we do business everywhere, right? Um, look, I, Ben, whenever I have someone with your experience uh, on the show, I, I ask them this question and I do get different, different answers all the time, but it's always interesting hearing, you know, the, the feedback and perspectives of people who actually have military and government experience as well as private industry experience. The Chinese are in the news once again, uh, and for hacking American universities and trying to steal military secrets and all kinds of uh, tomfoolery, okay? They just constantly at it. Do you, do you think the United States is in a cyber war right now? Well, um, let's, let's frame it up, right? Um, we have, what, petabytes of information being exfiltrated from the United States private industry, uh, universities, from the government directly to other nation states. And it's done on a regular basis and uh, with uh, malicious intent, for sure. So to me, as a military professional, I would say that's a, a provoking act, one that is not authorized, nor, nor asked for, nor warranted. Um, the word war, of course, is associated with human casualties, and we're not quite there yet. That's right, and that's the problem, right? And people don't think, everyone, you know, everyone says no, and if someone were to ask me the question, I would probably say no, too. But it is that differentiation. They do associate the word war with human casualties, and it's just a matter of time that we just, just keeps escalating and getting worse and worse and worse, 
before the, the loss of life happens, unfortunately. And it just seems to me like sometimes in this country, if someone, if someone doesn't lose their life, it's just not taking that seriously. When is the line going to be drawn? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you and I both know that laws and regulations are written in money and blood. So we're, we're seeing the loss of money. Is it going to take us blood to take it seriously? I'm right there with you. So, I, you know, I, I see these tariffs and whether you're for tariffs or not, I'm not exactly a, a big tariff guy, but when, when I see our, our administration, uh, you know, applying these tariffs to China, I think it's this just one way of trying to uh, fight this battle. And I think at some point, uh, we really have to come up with a strategic plan because I can tell you one thing, China has a strategic plan and, and they've been following it to a T for years, for years. Uh, you know, stealing IP from the government, from our, from our universities, from private industries. These are things that the United States government doesn't do on behalf of U.S. corporations. And a lot of people don't realize that. You say that to somebody, they say, oh, well, we do the same thing. No, we don't. We don't do yeah. the same thing. Yeah, and right. it, it's important for people to realize that. Now, you got the average person out there who thinks that they're just not a target because they're not in the military or they're not in the government. And a lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now really doesn't have anything to do with that. So why is it so important? to train anyone who uses a computer on some of the best practices for information security? Why should they know what to do from an information security perspective with their computers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter how big or how small you are. Uh, as soon as your device is able to be seen on the internet, it's, it's a matter of, of moments. I don't want to even say minutes, quite frankly. It's a matter of moments before somebody out there who is looking at what the content of the internet is knows that your device is there and it doesn't matter how big or how small you are, they'll take it all because a lot of it can be used on the black market or to compile other information and use that for the benefit of that attacker, whether it's a nation state, whether it's just your, your typical script kitty, you know, don't just, it's, it would be like uh, opening a store with no lock on the front door and advertising that we're open. You would never do that. So you have to take precautions, no matter how big you are, to ensure that your information is protected. So what do they do if you have a, you know, a family of five and you have a, a, at least children that are on the internet all the time and there's all kinds of uh, devices in your home, whether it's your refrigerator, your TVs, uh, iPads all over the place, everything, everyone's bouncing off the internet. Uh, how do you, what do you do to protect your family? What are some of the basic things that you can do? Well, the first is, uh, again, what kind of information do we have and does it need to be out there? So anybody with medical records, obviously, you know, we don't have paper medical records anymore. So that's going back and forth. Um, but really, the key comes down to, do I need this thing to connect to the Internet? That's one of the first things that you should ask yourself. Do I need a grill that's going to alert me from the other side of town that the meat needs to be turned? Or could I just set a timer? Uh, I get it. I love a, a, a tender brisket myself, but, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go with the, the old school timer method because I don't feel like I need to have that device. And again, it's not just, oh, well, somebody could hack my device. No, somebody could hack your device and then get into the rest of your devices, which leads to your online tax records and bank records and everything else that you have in there in your home computer, which you don't turn off anymore. Why would you? You don't have to, right? 
Uh, and yeah, so that's we, the we got, you know, we got wireless batteries coming out. We got 5G. I mean, everyone's going to be connected at all times, right? Right. But still, still even so, I think a, a lot of times it's, it's a hard concept for people to grasp uh, cybersecurity. Is. Cybersecurity is something that, you know, people think other people do. I think it's a lot of times if you're not in the business. And if you try to break it down, what are really some of the general rules of thumb that someone can understand about cybersecurity without actually having to be an expert? The number one thing is if you don't want it out there for everybody to see, don't put it on the internet. And then you could go so far as to say, don't put it on a computer that's connected to the internet. It can get to that point, right? Uh, I think one of the, just to, to ping back on what can people do, go get some training. If your company doesn't offer training, get it because it is just vital to understand what the bad guys do, why they do it, and, and just what are the telltale signs. You wouldn't send your kids out into the streets of New York without the lesson on don't talk to strangers, don't take candy from strangers, don't take rides from strangers. It's the same sort of thing. We shouldn't be putting our families on the internet without telling them what to look for, what are the telltale signs of bad guys and what they're trying to do. So, you know, Ben, one of the things that I was really excited over when you agreed to come on the show is the Cyber Warrior Foundation uh, that you're involved with. And I'd like to talk about that. And you have, you have an information security nonprofit that seeks to work with veterans of the United States military. Can you tell us about that and tell us what that's all about and how's it going? Yeah, Cyber Warrior Foundation was started uh, because we have quite a few veterans who are looking for meaning and purpose in their lives. And anybody who's been in that law enforcement, first responder kind of aspect of life, or even DOD, uh, they get it when, you know, when, when everything is on the line, and you're there to do a job that's going to potentially change the course of history or just save a couple of lives for people. It's a huge rush. And veterans getting out of the military um, really, really miss that stuff. And cybersecurity is that way. If I can defend this thing, if I can defend this information, I kept the bad guys away. The cybersecurity professionals see all, you know, 1.5 million attacks that are levied against a small business every day. And so what it comes down to is good paying careers that provide meaning and purpose to these veterans who will help fill our cybersecurity skills gap that is uh, that's exists now and looks like it's going to continue to get larger. That's ben, just one aspect. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us this evening. Yeah, no problem. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, it's been great. You guys are, are super smart guys, very conversational. I appreciate it. Well, Andy, Tom, we got to bounce up out of here. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 